Greta Gerwig is a really interesting director. I don't know if she wrote or co-wrote the scripts for Barbie and her other film, Lady Bird. And Little Women is a really interesting one because it's such a perennial favourite and it's been so many adaptations and I think hers is one of the best. I think it's really interesting that she was not nominated for an Oscar. It feels very zeitgeisty. It feels like this is Greta Gerwig's moment. And so both for the film itself and for her as director, it feels like a, a, an interesting one to talk about. Hey everybody. So joining Flixwatcher today, we have Sasha. Hello. Rosie. Hello. And Kobe. Hiya. And we're here to talk about Little Women. Thank you, as always, to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello film fans, welcome to Flix Watcher Podcast. Our guests today are Sasha and Rosie. Over to you please, Rosie, to say hello to our listeners and tell them a little bit more about who you are and what you do, please. Well, hello there. I'm Rosie Wilby. I am a comedian, podcaster and author, and I'm sometimes known as the queen of breakups because of my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, where myself and a couple of guests, either from the world of comedy or writing or sometimes from academia and science, unpick the sort of psychology of heartbreak and some of the most bizarre, poignant, funny, hilarious, strange things that we have done in the wake of heartbreak. <laughs> yeah, you can hear people from Zoe Lyons and Hal Cruttenton to Sindhu V, Jess Foster Q, and, and lots of amazing people all talking about their most painful or painfully embarrassing breakup stories and how we came through it often better and with more self-knowledge <laughs> over the other side of it. Are you often surprised at how candid people are with their stories? Yeah, incredibly surprised at the sort of vulnerability. I mean, obviously, in many, many cases, we're talking to people who are talking about an old breakup or perhaps even cases where somebody has reconciled with a partner and they've got back together. I mean, Zoe Lyons, who was on last year, I spoke about spitting from her wife during the pandemic and then they had got back together and her wife was in the audience. So that feels a bit different to when somebody is talking about a partner that they're sort of no longer in touch with or in, in contact with. But I think on the whole, the podcast is really not about sort of pointing the finger and laying blame at an ex-partner's feet unless they really have been awful. But but we're sort of holding our hands up to our own kind of weird and wonderful behaviours in that very extreme emotional state. And yeah, I've heard about people doing things like sort of running out into the road naked, chasing their ex out of the house and then suddenly realising all the neighbours were looking out the window or texting intimate photos to your neighbours when you get overexcited when you start dating again and have a sexual reawakening. So yeah, there's lots of things that can go on in the wake of a heartbreak and it some of it can be good, some of it can be painful, but ultimately I think we do start to get to know ourselves a bit because it forces us to 
think about some difficult questions and that can be a really healthy thing eventually. And so all of that thought process informs the Breakup Monologues book, which is also out now in paperback published by Bloomsbury. So yeah, be delighted if people check that out too and maybe even rock up to one of my events where they can get me to sign a rude message or something in it. Or often people get me to dedicate (laughs) it to their ex. (laughs) Nice. Oh, wow. Sasha, who are you? Oh, I am Sasha Bates. I am a psychotherapist, a writer and a podcaster. I've written three books. They are therapy adjacent. And so is my podcast. My podcast is called Shrink the Box. I co-host it with Ben Bailey-Smith. And each week we take a different fictional character and talk about them as though they were one of my therapy clients. So we psychoanalyze people like Catherine Kaywood from Happy Valley, Tony Soprano, Walter White from Breaking Bad, Fleabag, Arabella from I May Destroy You. We try and look at the most popular characters in the most popular series that a lot of people will have watched. And the aim really is to sort of try and demystify therapy. Well, it's twofold. One for me is to demystify the process of therapy so that for people who think it's this sort of scary thing that other people do, just to say it's, it's really not. It's just about two people talking and exploring and trying to understand why we act as we do. And then the other half is to kind of have a good old chinwag about the characters that we know and love and kind of think, why have they acted like that? What might, what unconscious forces might have been propelling them to do such crazy things? So yeah, it's great. It means I watch an awful lot of television, far more than I ever used to, but it's all good quality (laughs) because if it's not good quality, then there's nothing to say because they're not real. They don't feel like real, well-rounded characters with sort of inner lives. They've got to have interesting inner lives and logical kind of progression so yeah good opportunity to watch lots of great telly and think about characters a bit more deeply so episode one for you guys was to Tony Soprano which is clear like well the whole setup is he's under he's under therapy so that makes a great that must have been the first one out of the hat that you thought little Yes, well, it was. And yes, we had the whole meta-narrative of somebody who's in therapy and there's a fictional therapist and how realistic is that? So we've done a couple where there's been therapists involved, some more realistic than others. Tony Soprano's therapist, Dr. Melfi, I think is one of the the most realistic therapists on screen. Most screen therapists are absolute nonsense, but she's a good one. (laughs) And the other good one, actually, which we've just done recently, we did two episodes on the great series Sex Education, where... Gillian Anderson plays a sex therapist, but more importantly yes. to the plot, her son Otis, who's only 16, yeah. sets up his own sex therapy clinic for his classmates. And he is, even though he's 16 and a virgin, he is one of the most effective therapists portrayed on television, I think. <laughs> I don't know what that says about us as a profession. <laughs> I look forward to those episodes. I've not heard them yet, but I think I was thinking of one one person would be good. I'd be super interested in, in you guys talking about would be Hannah Horvath from Girls, played by Lena Dunham. So we have a few people have suggested that we do Girls, and it's sort of it's there in the mix. Yeah, we we know well. Yeah, we've got a long a long list. So that's the, I'm sure the you. Problem. I'm sure but you do. Yeah, she's people. a good one. She'd be a good one. Good suggestion. <laughs> I also wanted to say to Sasha that at the breakup monologues, I was surprised at one of our live shows, we had quite a few relationship therapists there who were taking a lot of notes, (laughs) getting advice from us comedians, (laughs) which did worry me somewhat. 
<laughs> oh, well, we take what we can. <laughs> well, we're here talking today about Little Women, which is your choice, Sasha. Can you yeah. tell us, first of all, why did you choose it? And then you've got 60 seconds or less to give us the synopsis. Okay, well, I picked it for a number of reasons, really. It felt like with Barbie coming out, Greta Gerwig's other film, that's, as we speak, it's coming out, I think, in two days' time, and there's been so much hype around Barbie. And I think Greta Gerwig is a really interesting director and a very feminist director, and she also writes. I think she's written, I don't know if she wrote or co-wrote the scripts for Barbie and her other film, Lady Bird. And Little Women is a really interesting one because it's such a perennial favourite and it's been around and done there's been so many adaptations and I think hers for me is one of the best and I think it's really interesting that she was not nominated for an Oscar as director so I just it feels very zeitgeisty it feels like this is Greta Gerwig's moment and so both for the film itself and for for her as director it feels like an interesting one to talk about. Okay so synopsis Four Little Women, if you don't know it, (laughs) starts now. Okay. So Little Women is an adaptation of a book that was written by Louisa May Alcott in 1868, and it's set a couple of years earlier in the American Civil War. And it tells the story of the March family. The dad is away fighting the Civil War, and the mum is left to raise the four girls. And each of the four girls represents a different mode of artistic expression. There's Joe, the writer, Meg, the... I can't remember what Meg does now... Amy, the painter, and Beth, the musician. And Meg's more of a sort of caretaker. She's sort of the feminine ideal of the kind of the the good caretaker. And it charts the story of the four of them and their relationships with each other and what they go on to do and what they are allowed to do as women in the 19th century. Boom. Just under the buzzer. (laughs) So, I mean, let's... Go back to yourself, Sasha. I've I've only ever seen I've seen this the second time I've seen Little Women. Traditionally, not that big a fan of period dramas or period films in general. But you said you've seen a few other iterations of Little Women. So, you, and this is one of the best. So, how does which are the other ones you're considering? Because I think the the Winona Ryder one is one that people t- used to refer to as like the the peak, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was a really good adaptation and I've read the book. So I haven't seen that many adaptations, but I'm more interested in the fact that there have been so many. And what is it about this particular book that has just been repeated and repeated? Apparently there's been more than 20 adaptations. It's been an opera, it's been a ballet, it's been a stage play. So I'm just intrigued as to what it is that makes people want to keep going back to this story of four sisters in the American Civil War. And I think it's because in some ways it shows how far we've come in terms of the struggles that women have, but also it shows how perennial it is, how in many ways nothing has changed and it's still the same old arguments. And I think that's why it's so interesting that a huge theme of the book is Joe, the writer character, who's like the, the sort of the independent, feisty, I'm going to get out of here and have my own career and not get married character she has to fight to be recognized as a viable proposition as a writer she has the male publisher telling her how to what and how to write and that to me feels like not so different from the me too movement where women have had to do it the way men have told them to do it 
Greta Gerwig's own story of not being nominated for an Oscar when it was clearly one of the best films of that year. And so it's like, how much has really changed, even though we kind of watch it and think, oh, it's a bit anachronistic and, and old fashioned, but we're still fighting the same fight, really. Yeah. Helen, I know, Helen, you've seen this before. You're a big Greta Gerwig stan. What about yourself, Rose? Have you seen this before? And have you seen other versions of Little Women? Yes, I think a long time ago, I have seen some of the other versions and am familiar with the story, but I'd not seen this adaptation before just watching it the other day. So yeah, I found this really interesting. And at first I was quite intrigued by the way the timeline is treated because I think we've generally seen this story told completely chronologically in a linear way. Which can be very satisfying and makes a lot of sense, and we can easily follow it. Whereas this sort of jumps right in with Joe pitching her work. She's already an adult, and we have flashbacks to childhood when they're living together and putting on plays and having a wonderful time. And there's the sort of cacophony of four sisters. And it's in some ways, it, it's quite a difficult watch for me because I've always, always longed to have sisters. I am an only child, and I have. I've really struggled with a sense of loneliness and displacement in the world because I don't have siblings, but in particular longed for sisters. And I, yeah, really saw something that I had had craved. You know, I thought, oh my God, to have so much fun and fights too, yes. But to have those people that you were so connected to and bonded with, yeah, it really played into all my sort of fantasies about having sisters. And I think that playfulness and sort of roller coaster of emotions of those sibling relationships was really, really brought to the fore in, in a really great way in this adaptation. But I did think for the first sort of half of the film, or certainly the first half hour or so, the kind of flashbacks and the timeline did feel a tiny bit jarring and you sort of get whiplash sort of knowing exactly where you are but then that sort of dual timeline narrative pays off amazingly when you sort of see the context of of what the different decisions that characters are making and how they play out and then of course you have this meta twist now with the new ending which is all about women sort of claiming agency over the narrative that they tell and that then completely made sense of why they had started exactly where they did with Joe, the writer, pitching her work, as Sasha says, to <laughs> male editors and publishers who are telling her exactly what she's got to write. And- no, no, no. She must get married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a line where where the editor, the publisher says to her, if you've got a woman in the story, she has to end up either dead or married. And, and that is, feel, does feel like back, back in the day, those were the were the only options. And within the book, one of the sisters does die. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's only been out a couple of centuries, but just in case. <laughs> so Beth does die and two of the others get married. And then what is interesting is that in the book, even Joe does get married eventually, despite all her protestations that, no, I'm going to be a career woman. The film really sort of plays with that notion of what is a, a happy ending, because in the film, you're given two sort of alternate endings where Joe is also, in a way, playing Louisa May Olcott. And there's one version where she is watching her book 
be published and that is her happy mm. ending that that is her relationship is with her book and her art and her work and her legacy but within the book that she has written the publisher has said she's got to marry and in the actual book she does she marries a german professor but at least what she does get even in the the yes she does get married version she marries a professor who does respect her work who does challenge her who doesn't try and make her unlike the publisher doesn't try and make her be any different he says when she starts writing for money and she has to write sort of soppy romances he says these are not good this is not you you're not writing authentically you're writing what sells which is another tension which i think is really interesting it's not just the tension between do i get married and be a wife or do i have a career there's also the tension between well if i write am i writing as a means of expressing myself or am i writing to make money in which case i do have to yeah. write what what the nation wants what to hear expect. yeah the whole book i think is about these choices and these compromises and and the cost to us for following our dreams and doing something slightly out of the norm i think we're meant to take that ending as the actual ending is Joe getting the book at the end and holding the book, having watched it be pressed and created. I mean, I think Greta Gerwig herself has said it's not a sort of girl gets boy, but girl gets book. And I think the alternative ending scene we see where she does seem to be married, I think that is meant to be the fictionalised version within the book, isn't it? Because it sort of feels like it's shot slightly differently in that sort of sepia flashback tone that feels more fictionalised. I think I felt that was we were supposed to take it that the sort of actual ending that Joe gets is the Louisa May Alcott ending of being cho choosing writing. Yes, I think that is definitely what the film is saying. But of course, that's not what the original books didn't give us that option. But that is where the revisionist and the updating is so brilliant, is that she's able to give us the ending that I think modern woman would like to believe is equally a good one. But I think I'm trying to remember, actually, so many years since I read the book, I'm trying to remember if there were other ways in which she veers away from the book other than the ending. But I don't, I'm not familiar enough to remember if there are ways. But I think whether she's veered away from the original or not in other places, she's definitely veered away from it in the sense that she's brought out different elements. She's sort of foregrounded different elements that speak more to a modern sensibility, I think. And this is the only version I've seen or read in which Amy, the youngest sister, comes across in any way as likeable. She's generally seen as the sort of the spoiled brat. Yeah, I've heard that from many people that's, yeah, Florence Pugh does a great job of making her, like, and also obviously Greta's writing yeah. and direction have made her amenable. But I mean, Helen, you've said before, we've had Sense and Sensibility, was it here? Or we've had Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Sensibility. You've said that you weren't a big fan of period dramas, but I know you're excited for Greta Gerwig's version of this. How did it stand up for you? Yeah, so I was only really interested in this because it was Greta. And I think I remember we talked about it on the podcast and I said, you know, Greta, Little Women. And you were like, nah, not interested. What is that? What is that? And I was like, it's Greta Gerwig, Timothy Chalamet, Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh. And you were like, nah, not into it. And I, th I, th I think maybe you maybe like it more than me. I'm not sure. I really like it. And <laughs> I saw it when it came out and I hadn't rewatched it. So I was, I was looking forward to rewatching it. And there's just a couple of lines that I noted this time that really stood out to me. One of them was, I can't get over my disappointment of being a girl, which I think I probably felt that quite a few times being quite tomboyish and just kind of wanting to do a lot of the, the boy things and finding that being just being a girl has been 
a restriction rather than the activity. And then there's a bit at the end saying, just because my dreams are different to your dreams doesn't mean they aren't important. And I think that's really kind of, I think it's around when Meg takes the role of kind of the housewife and Joe kind of like pulls her up on it. And I think that's kind of like an important way of saying, you know, there is a lot more progression for women now and there are other opportunities. But also if if that is what you want and that is your dream, then just because it's what the patriarchy wants as well, it doesn't mean it's bad. So I think that's a really nice way of kind of being progressive, but also saying that if if your dream is just to do that, then then that's fine. So yeah, I think it's a really great film. And I think it she really captures the period in the costumes and the way it's filmed. But she asked Spielberg, she said to him, How can I how can I get it to look warm? And he said to shoot on film. So I love her. Like I got my new pink t-shirt. I wear it today because I love her so much. Oh, okay. But she just she just really really cares about every detail that goes into her film and you just know that she's just had so many conversations and just made sure that so many small details are just perfect. And I think her enthusiasm for this story and how she wanted to present it in her vision just just comes across really well. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> so you love her more than the film or is it both Probably. together? I mean, I, I, I'd never really read the book. I read it after watching the film and I haven't seen any okay. of the other versions of the film either. So I w- went into it purely because of the director and the actors involved. The Greta factor. Yeah. I know I do remember th- thinking, oh, it's coming out and I know it's Greta, but also it's period. But I don't think I was so negative on it, but it's always a film I was going to watch because it's, it's Greta Gerwig and I... You know, Mistress America is one of my favourite films ever. That's one of our great white whales. It comes on Netflix sometimes and someone picks it and then it goes off Netflix and you're like, no! But yeah, I think Greta's fantastic. In a similar way, I put in a kind of similar standing as like Leonard Dunham in terms of creating their own work and doing stuff and and seemingly getting it done in the way they want to do it. This Barbie film that's coming out, I haven't seen it yet, but it seems to be like everything that she's wanted to do is coming out her way. And I'm I'm fascinated to see how that is. And I'm, I'm really excited for her career going forward. Even so much she's doing the, supposedly, as it's in the news recently, she's going to be doing the, the next uh, C.S. Lewis film adaptation. And I was so bored of those films from watching in the 80s. I'm, but I'm actually quite interested to see what she'll do with them. I'm like, I think she's fantastic. This is great. The cast is amazing. I don't know Beth. I still haven't seen Beth in anything else. She's, she's an the, old. Uh, if, so she's in that. And she's in... Oh, okay. She's said M. Night Shyamalan film. But Emma Watson... Emma Watson quite understated in this, but that doesn't mean... Obviously, she, she's a fantastic actor. Florence Pugh being absolutely kicked ass in this. Simon Shyamalan, but it's, it's all about Sir Sharonan here, really, isn't it? And a bit of Laura Dern there as well. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and Bob. Don't forget Bob. I know Bob, yeah, but he's fine. I'm, yeah, he's great. But I mean, I'm, look at Chris Cooper as a, as a fantastic kind of benevolent, rich older person who... who donates the piano and tries to give, you know, Beth a bit more stuff to do. So I mean, the, the supporting character, I'm looking mainly at the four girls who drive the plot and, and Saoirse Ronan is just really an, an amazing, amazing actor. And Meryl, of course, as well. We forgot to mention Meryl. as Yeah, um, the street Oh, oh yes. I did see the character, who, the actor who plays Beth in a TV series, Sharp Objects, with Amy Adams, which was brilliant. Oh, okay. So I had seen her in that. She's in Baby Teeth as well. That was probably maybe her biggest Eliza Scanham. The other thing that I've just remembered that I think 
is an insertion that wasn't in the original was Marmy, Laura Dern's character, the, the mother character, who was always a bit, I mean, she's called Marmy. I always thought she was a little bit smarmy because she was all a bit too good to be true. It's all a little bit sickly and it was all about just being there for her girls. But Laura Dern does, as you would, given an actor of that caliber, invest her with a bit more sort of spunk and guts, really. And um, there's a line where she says, says, I'm angry every single day, but after 40 years, I'm learning not to let it get the better of me. And I think for her to be allowed to own her anger, and I think all of the women are allowed to own the emotions that they never were really allowed to own, like anger, like ambition, like being creative forces, like having something to say. And I think that's really different, that they're allowed to not just all be sort of sickly. And I think alongside that as well, they are allowed to be fun. I mean, they are loving and warm and caring and supportive and collaborative and all those kind of classical female qualities. But they also, they fight and they rough and tumble and they put on plays. And it's in start, there's so much laughter and joy and ribbing of each other. And it's in such contrast to the male household next door. Their neighbours are the Lawrence family, which is a, a male household. And the contrast is just extraordinary. And like you were talking about it being shot, the, the March household with all the women is shot in a very warm way. The Lawrence household with all the men, it's cold and empty and echoey and dark. And they sit at sort of opposite ends of the table and they have they have these sort of silent, cold meals. And there's the, the patriarch... <laughs> Mr. Lawrence and his grandson, Laurie, who is so desperate, really, to escape the male household. And he'll do anything to be part of the March household. And he's always over Mm. there wanting to be part of their theatre troupe, wanting to go on uh, adventures with them. And he's like, he's so desperate to be part of that family that he falls in love with Jo, really wants to marry her. She doesn't want to marry him. And it's almost like... He then goes off and sort of gets drunk in Paris um, and then realizes, oh, if I can't have Joe, I could have Amy. It's almost like I'm going to be part of this family no matter what, because they represent love and warmth and joy and authenticity and everything that the male household isn't. So I like the sort of neat reversal of we're all meant to think that a woman always trying to get into the boys clubs. But actually here it's a man trying to get into the girls club to the point of, oh, if I can't have that sister, I'll have that sister to marry. You almost think he was going to work his way through them. I don't actually think that. He's more complex than than that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it feels like the women represent sort of life and spontaneity and the men represent sort of a moribund stuckness that again I think we could extrapolate that out to the wider society not all men obviously not all women but there is definitely you know there's a reflection yes exactly there is a a reflection (laughs) there of more modern society and the gender stereotypes that we're all kind of hopefully fighting against. Yeah oh I also just wanted to say that things that hit home for me was the sort of conflict between creativity and being in a relationship. Jo makes a speech where she talks about the kind of spirit and ambition and creativity that that women have, and they're expected at that time to just sort of fall in love and, and get married, and that's all they're supposed to do, but she wants to do so much more. But even though she loves writing and that's what she wants to do, she just feels so lonely as well. So I really responded to that. And I I do think it's very hard to juggle 
And I've always found it hard to juggle creativity and being in a relationship. And I laugh in my breakout podcasts and books that it's really in the times that I've been single that I've done all my best work. So it makes it really difficult to want to stay in a relationship, especially when I need to write more books. Mm. Well, I think that's really true, actually. And I think what is good about this film is it shows that every decision you make comes at a cost. There's no one right decision. Joe says, as you have, I don't want it to just be the women get married, but at the same time, I am so lonely. And then you have the contrast with Meg, who did marry for love. And she has to admit that sometimes she really misses not having nice things. And she really misses not being able to buy the pretty frocks that, that her friends have because she's got no money so it's not like oh this way good this way bad it is like every choice you make there is going to be a cost to follow in your dream whether that is love or whether it is a career nothing comes without a, a compromise and a cost so it shows that up really well i think well let's head to the scores guys I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have included fellow Stripped Media family members Martin and Sam from Song by Song, and Kobe from Flixwatcher, and Dave from The Wire Stripped. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast, or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Welcome to the Flixwatcher scores. The scores are always out of five. You can have decimal places if you wish. And we'll start with you, please, Sasha, with your recommendability. Oh, I'm going to say 4.8 because I thought it was great. <laughs> Rosie? I will give it a 4.2. 4.2. Helen? Strangely, I'm also going to go 4.2. Like, I really, really love it, but I feel that the title will just put off so many people and the fact that it's based on a very old book will also put up a lot of people and the fact that it's a story about sisters will also put up a lot of people and that it's kind of that yeah. period drama vibe so these things should <laughs> never put you off anything but I feel that unfortunately it will be a barrier for some. Well it puts you off period drama doesn't it? You know a big period drama Stan. I'm not, but if someone said to me, I would 4.2 recommend you watch a film because, <laughs> and they play me 32 minute podcast where we've all picked out different things that really kind of like stood out to us. And we felt that even though it was a period drama and the setting was in the past, that it was really kind of resonating yeah. in the future, then I would consider, you know, I would, I would <laughs> consider. <laughs> but yeah, I feel that for some people it's, it, they're going to go, little women, it's an old book in it. <laughs> don't want to watch that. <laughs> I don't know why they were cockney. <laughs> I still think whenever someone says Little Women, I still think about the episode of Friends where Joe reads it for the first time and he gets, and prior to that, he didn't really read, but his, the only other book he read was um, The Shining and he actually properly fell in love with it. I still didn't inspire me to read the book. I still haven't read the book to this day and it's one of the, I guess, not a great feeling, but still one of those outliers where I'm like, I should read that at some point. But in spite of that, I watched it and I enjoyed it. And I really overcome by it in the cinema and I'm glad it exists in the world. I don't think I'm going to watch any other versions of it. I'm not that fussed. I think Greta's done a great job. So that's 4.5 for me. So repeat being score, Sasha. 
repeat viewing score. I don't, well, I don't really tend to rewatch films. I don't really feel the need to rewatch this one much as I enjoyed it. But then again, like I said, it is a book that has been going for nearly 200 years. So clearly there is rereading and rewatching in there for people. I don't know. I'm going to say 3.5. Rosie. Well, funnily enough, I was going to say 3.5 as well, because <laughs> great minds, eh? I do think it's a lovely film, but I don't think there's much that you would necessarily miss out on when you watch it first time round, unless you are checking your phone and you really have missed big chunks of it because you're doing something else. But I don't think you need to rewatch it to to understand anything or to to see specific details. But there are just so many lovely elements to it and such great performances that it still would bear um, repeat watching if you wanted a sort of lovely warm hug of a film. Helen? Yes, I'm also in the 3.5 club. I saw it when it came out and hadn't (laughs) seen it since and really enjoyed watching it again but it, you know it's it's two hours 15 minutes so that is a little bit of it's it's just over that two hours mark whereas like Francis Ha which is like my favorite Greta Gerwig is like under 90 minutes and I just put that on anytime because it's it's so short whereas this I'd be a bit more you've got to set aside two hours plus so less of a repeat even though I did enjoy watching it again. Uh, I, yeah I don't think I'm going to watch it much after this one Three point to I feel I'd need to watch a I would I'd need to either read the book or watch a different version before going back to something again I'm not sure when that's going to happen small screen score Sasha I think it worked pretty well on the small screen I didn't see it on the big screen so I can't really compare but I don't feel I missed out on much by it being on the small screen I mean there were some nice landscapes you got some good like snowy scenes of uh, Massachusetts which maybe would have felt a bit more romantic and evocative on on the big screen but other than that I think it's I think it's perfectly doable on a small screen I don't think you miss out on too much so I think 4.2 Rosie yeah, I think it works really well on a small screen. So, yeah, I'd say 3.9. Helen? Yeah, I saw this at the cinema. It went on Boxing Day and it was nice because there's like Christmas scenes in the film as well. But then watching it at home is kind of nice as well. So I think it's, if you can see it on the big screen, then great. But I think it works as fine, fine as because it's got that kind of like little family at home kind of feel like... I kind of get that, Rosie. I had brothers. I didn't have sisters, but I feel as though if, if you did have sisters, this would be one that on a Sunday afternoon you could all sit on the sofa with a blanket and watch together and it'd be really nice. So, yeah, for, for that specific reason, get your family together, get your brothers and your <laughs> sisters and your mum and your auntie and watch it at home on a Sunday. So a five. Five. Yeah, I saw the cinema and loved it in the cinema. I can't place what it misses on a smaller screen. Maybe just being fully enveloped in the story, even though you know, on second watch I took more out of it. I'm guessing, Sasha, was you said the other, the other versions of the story in the book, they're just told linearly. So the, the Winona Ryder version was just told as a straight line through the, without going back and forth like Godfather 2. Yeah, from what I remember, I think it was about 20 years ago. And I also have vague memories of a version that I watched as a child in the 70s. So I can't remember who on earth was in that one. But that one, I think, was the one that stayed with me. 
Isn't there a Catherine Hepburn version? There is a Catherine Hepburn version. I don't know if it was that one. I think there might have been one in between. I can sort of vaguely visualise it from, but I can't, I don't think as a child, I probably wouldn't have known the names of the actors. But yeah, I think all the others were chronological. I, I don't know them well enough, but it feels like it was quite radical to break it up in that way. way. Yeah. But I think I think that, that kind of telling is something you don't get normally in standard telling. I think that, it helps give that kind of cinematic feel and helps you kind of keep keep in that kind of zone when you're there. In therapy terms, I really like the fact that it's intercut because so much of therapy is understanding how our behaviour now had its roots in childhood. So seeing the two things so closely shown, the sort of the child in the, the girl in the woman and the woman in the girl, it was very redolent for me of, for what we do in therapy, really, of trying to understand that those, our younger selves, still reside inside us and actually it's it's worth checking back in with our sort of in, our inner child and our inner teenager and our inner rebel quite often to, to understand the person that we are now really so I really liked the in, intercutting and seeing how closely the girl and the woman mirrored each other and also how much they were able to change as well. So small screen score I'm going to go a bit lower than you I'm going to go for a 3.8 engagement score Sasha? 4.5 Anything behind that? You're just in it and engaged. <laughs> I think because of that mixing up of the chronology, I think it, it keeps you keeps you watching a lot more than had it just been slightly more plodding and pedestrian, just going through it bit by bit. So yeah, I, I didn't feel the need to walk away or check any other screens while I was watching it. Rosie? Yeah, I think it becomes way more engaging as you go along. I think I said this, I wasn't quite feeling the dual timeline. And I normally love dual timeline narratives and sort of complicated flashbacks and flash forwards and whizzing about in time. But it wasn't totally working for me in the first 30 minutes or so. It really, for me, that pays off much more in the latter sections of the film when we do understand as Sasha's saying, the sort of consequences of decisions that we've made. And I think that just starts to come across so much more strongly in the latter part of the film, which I just enjoyed so much more. So I would have to say that the first bit of the film, I might have kind of been a, a wee bit distracted. And I did sort of, it, it was partly the nature of how I was watching it because I didn't have a lot of time the first evening. I, I only had time to watch about half an hour or so. And I was enjoying it, but not loving it. And then when I went back and watched a bit more and then watched another section, because <laughs> I've, I've been watching it when I've been getting in from gigs and events and things, I just progressively enjoyed it more and more. So I would be worried that some people who... You know, I'm not always into period dramas. And I think some people who aren't typically, they might not get super, super immersed in it in the first bit. And I'd be worried about them sort of switching off and watching something else because it really starts to reward as we get it towards the sort of second half of the film. So I would sort of give it about a 3.1. Helen? So if you find it interesting, there's been seven different film adaptations of it. So it's quite, quite a lot. For engagement, I'm going to give it a four, a nice solid four. I don't think it's one of those ones that you need to be kind of like gripped watching, but obviously you need to pay attention or you just won't get as much enjoyment out. But yeah, it's kind of like a nice, a nice easy watch so far. Uh, I'm going 4.5. Again, this is my only 
telling the story. I didn't know what was happening. And on second rewatch, I was kind of trying to pull the pieces together a bit more. So I was fully into it both times I watched it. That gives us an overall score of 4.02500, which is decent. Yep, it's good in the four category. Absolutely. Uh, it's a pleasure to watch again. Thanks so much, Sasha. I wasn't, I don't know when I would have watched it again, but I'm glad you picked it for this and I'm glad to watch and discuss it with you guys. So thank you so much. Okay. So before we go, guys, Sasha, Rosie, tell us where we can find you online. Tell us about your podcast and we'll say goodbye to everyone who's listening. Okay. So my podcast is called Shrink the Box. You can find it Spotify, Apple, Amazon, wherever you normally find your podcasts. My books are in bookshops and online and in two of them are on Audible, Kindle, again, various <laughs> various means of getting hold of them. And I am on the socials, but we're only really mainly on Instagram and I'm at Sash Bates. So no A, just at Sash Bates. And I have a website, which is sashabates.co.uk. So, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a pedant. I, I was thinking in my head, but there's two A's in Sash Bates. <laughs> but you mean not the end, the one at the oh. end of Sasha? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Two, not three. Yeah. Yeah. Two, not three. I get it now. It reminds me of my joke where I say that I first started obsessing about breakups when I got dumped by email, but did feel better after correcting my partner's spelling. Uh, so yeah that is a joke more about my own pedantry which you've just seen on display there as well i'm on twitter at rosie wilby and on instagram and threads at breakup monologues and you can indeed hear my podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check out the breakup monologues book everywhere you get your books it follows my first book is monogamy dead which i think is still available in those places as well and I narrated both of my audiobooks as well. So if you like the sound of my tones, then you can hear me reading all about sex and love and relationships and heartbreak and ultimately rediscovering the joy after a breakup. Guys, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you both and it's been a pleasure to talk about Little Women. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Bye. 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 Enjoyed this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast? Why not leave us a five-star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at FlixWatcherPod on Twitter and we're at FlixWatcher on Instagram. Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Rockwood Audio's editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Rockwood, R-O-K-K Wood Audio. Tell them FlixWatcher sent you. just heard a stripped media production.